0: Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, lockdown may be back in Europe and the museum's closed, but we look at an art city that's very much open. Shanghai, where a cluster of art fairs and exhibitions have opened this week to much fanfare. I speak to Lisa Movius in Shanghai about this week's events and we look at a rare museum event opening in Europe, Take Britain's Winter Commission, which, because it's on the facade of the building, opens to the public this week. Louisa Buck meets the latest artist to take on that commission, Shaila Kumari Singh Berman. And for this week's Work of the Week, we focus on Art Is by Lorraine O'Grady, a performance made in 1983 that inspired the video made for the triumphant candidates in the US election, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, most art fairs this year have been cancelled, but the two flagship fairs in Shanghai, Art 021 and the Westbund Art and Design Fair, have opened this week alongside a wealth of exhibitions and events. Also launched this week is the city's new Art Tower, a 93,000 square metre monolithic cultural and gallery hub in the Westbund Art District. I spoke to the Art Newspaper's China correspondent Lisa Movius, who's just been to the fairs, about this week's events and the Shanghai scene. Lisa, in Europe, museums and galleries are closing. We haven't had any fairs for a very long time. What's the COVID situation in Shanghai? And tell us about what the art world is doing in response.
1: Well, we just had our first local transmission in five months here in Shanghai. It was a freight handler at the airport. So the assumption is that they probably caught it from um, the virus being on something that was being handled um, rather than a direct person to person transmission. Um, we were rather afraid that this would lead to more cases and more of a shutdown and some things kind of uh, a few gyms closed for a few days and things like that. But actually, uh, we've been very lucky and there hasn't been a further spread so far. And so the fairs are still going ahead.
0: Yeah. And, and, and when when you say fairs, you know, it is, there are multiple events. This is not just a, a sort of low key thing, is it? There, there are multiple fairs. There are major art world events. It feels like a very active art scene there.
1: It really is. So there are two fairs that are opening this week. Today we had Art 021, and then yesterday there was the West Bund Art and Design Fair. And they're kind of friendly rivals, you might say. Uh, Both are pretty big, pretty established, pretty well-respected, been around for seven or eight years, I believe. And this year, um, last year they both got over 100 galleries. This year they're whittled down a little bit, um, but still pretty respectable pulling from regional and local galleries and plus international galleries with um, presences in Asia.
0: You say that there are fewer galleries this year. Is that mainly because international galleries haven't travelled?
1: Well, so to come into China, um, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, even if you're just coming in from Hong Kong, you have to quarantine for two weeks in a hotel.
0: Right. Okay. And so that that restricts galleries that don't have an existing presence in the region, right?
1: Yes. I think there's maybe a couple dozen dealers who have um, done the quarantine. But as far as I know, none of the collectors have done quarantines to come in. So
0: now you've stepped off the fair floor to come and talk to us today. So what's the atmosphere like?
1: Well, today's the second of the two fairs. And I would say both are really busy. Ardo 21 may be a little more crowded, but it also has more narrow hallways and, and such compared to West Bond. And I think they reach out to a different kind of audience in addition to the art audience. So a lot of like fashion and um, luxury type people.
0: Okay, so that's Art 021, and, and then West Bund is more of a kind of traditional art crowd?
1: Um, Yeah, a bit more is focused on the traditional art crowd. Traditionally, West Bund is more curated and serious and the bigger galleries, whereas Art 021 tends to be more, you know, young and hip and up and coming. But I think that has all gotten, gotten muddled this year.
0: So tell us about what, what dealers galleries are telling you about their experiences I mean uh, did you sense that there was sort of brisk selling going on did the dealers and galleries seem quite happy
2: yes
1: there are quite a few red dots and everyone I talked to if I could talk to them at all if they weren't being carried off by people they were saying they were pretty happy for opening days
0: Let's talk about the international presence then, because, of course, people like Gagosian and White Cube and others already are in the region. And, I, so, and so I imagine, therefore, it wasn't too much of a stretch for them to attend these fairs and to bring some of their major artists.
1: Yeah, so um, you'll see um, almost all of these guys at one or both of these uh, major fairs and, you know, with a pretty, pretty strong presence. Most of them have staff in Hong Kong and locations in Hong Kong. And then many of them also have like a sales office and staff within China. So they're able to put together operations pretty quickly.
0: What about the local presence? I mean, do you sense that it's sort of as active as it would have been in a normal year? Or or is there some level of, is it slightly lower key than it had been in the past?
1: You know, um, given what the spring and summer was like, I was pretty worried that, you know, there'd be kind of a mass culling of galleries, and we have we have a lot of really great sort of small galleries working with emerging art- artists doing really interesting projects, but they have pretty low margins. Um, you know, it's hard to say if they're going to survive this or next year, but, you know, they've all held on this far, and they're all at the fairs and, you know, saying that they're doing pretty well and making up for lost time. Um, in terms of sales and contacts. So actually, it is um, going pretty strong for the local galleries. And then beyond the more established local galleries, um, a weird thing is that to fill up all the space that they lost with international galleries is that they've let in a lot of smaller, lesser-known galleries into these fairs, which, you know, there is some compromising of quality, but it's also really interesting to see, say, like a tiny gallery coming in from a place like Changsha or um, elsewhere in the country that you normally would not see in the big fairs.
0: Can you give us a flavour of the sort of place that Shanghai has in the Chinese ecosystem? Is it a rival to Beijing? Do the two scenes complement each other? Do they feel quite distinct?
1: I've always said that Shanghai and Beijing is a one-sided rivalry. Beijing feels competition with Shanghai and Shanghai has never paid that much attention to Beijing. Beijing for a long time was where everything was. It was has the famous art academy, it has 798... Um, So it has a bit more of an establishment uh, art scene up there, and for a long time Shanghai, though it was going strong, was largely ignored by the Beijing scene and the the sort of national and international media, but starting about, you know, about eight or nine years ago when these fairs started up, um, there's been a lot more attention, a lot more of the gravity coming to Shanghai, because Um, based on this long-standing scene of good artists and good galleries. um, We now have these strong fairs, we've had an explosion of museums, Uh, we have the Shanghai Biennale, which is the only international level art exhibition within mainland China. uh, Curated exhibition, I mean. So there's, there's enough happening and there's enough energy that they keep building on. Whereas Beijing still has, I would say, more artists than Shanghai does, but in terms of infrastructure and events, it's a little bit quieter.
0: So tell us about this Art Tower, this enormous new building full of various institutions. What is it? Who's in it? Who runs it? Who funds it? All that kind of stuff.
1: So Art Tower is the newest project of the West Bund Group, which is the organiser of one of the fairs. It is a state-owned property company that is also partly owned by the Shihui District Government. And so the... There are a bunch of galleries that have spaces and buildings around the fair, but the um, Westbound group is hoping to get them all to move into the art tower and eventually have everything very centralized there. Um, CAFA, the art academy in Beijing, is also going to be opening up an experimental space in the art tower eventually. And then of course they'll have like logistics companies, um, insurance companies. Um, they hope to turn it into sort of a one-stop shop for the art industry at the moment no one is in there permanently they've opened it up temporarily for art week and then they're going to close it and finish all the construction and open it formally next year
0: so essentially you can do a sort of architectural tour there now can you or are there sort of artworks stage they sort of um, pop-up artworks
1: uh there's a couple of shows inside there's a um sponsored exhibition of uh Buddhist artwork and Shang Art has a temporary space and then there is a group show which is just greatest hits from the galleries that are at the West Bund space.
0: And now the Shanghai Biennale was actually postponed wasn't it But, but there have been events connected to that that are going on in the... Uh, city this this week so in a sense it, there's a there's a sort of presence that the biennale has even if it's not the biennale itself
1: yes i'm guessing the organizers felt that they couldn't uh skimp on the energy and attention of everything happening this week but it was with all the travel restrictions and the shipping problems it's um a little bit too much to put on an international scale um exhibition like a biennale here at the moment um, so what they're doing is they're doing some performance art and they're doing a series of lectures throughout this week. And so they're they're saying it's not a postponement, it's restructuring.
0: What's interesting to me about that is it suggests that the Biennale relies much more on an international audience, international artists, etc., whereas the fairs can exist in a way with, with with a sort of lesser presence from overseas. Is that right?
1: You know, I I don't know if they would put it that way. I would say more that... We can wait for a Biennale, but perhaps the galleries can't wait for the fairs.
0: Right. So commerce needs to happen. These galleries need to make money. In other words,
1: right. And also, the Biennale is hosted by the power station of art, so it's their own space. Uh, they can they can pretty much do it when they want without it really impacting their overall operations so much. Whereas a art fair is taking taking up for a week in a. Um, rented space or you know in Western's case it's their own space but they use it for a lot of other things so it's a lot harder to shift it around and you have to plan a lot further ahead.
0: So you say that the events are sort of buzzy this week but what does buzzy mean in terms of visuals you know t- could you describe the scene because obviously in the UK even though the museums reopened recently there, were, there was a very strict level of social distancing, masks were compulsory etc. Is that the same there or does buzzy mean you know really crowded and and um, a sort of genuine hubbub
1: i would say that the buzz is both in terms of the energy and the actual crowds so while we've lost a lot of the international attendees we have gained a lot more in terms of domestic attendees people who maybe normally wouldn't come to a fair but this year it seems like a much bigger event so we have to turn they have to turn out for it
0: Right. But, but uh, you know, is there are there strict social distancing measures in place and things like that? Because I know that in China, it's much more related to the sort of QR codes, isn't it? And, and temperature checks and all that side of things.
1: So the, the actual physical distancing in China is very hard to do just because we have such a large population density. However, there are mandatory masks um, for all of these events, and people often take them off, but because of the break- outbreak this week, people are much more observant than they have been recently. Plus, for each of the the fairs, you have to get your codes checked several times, plus there's a pre-registration code for every person invited, so you have to put in all of your information and uh, make sure that they know who you are, and then they scan you in when you come in. For general visitors, they're doing time visits, but uh, VIP visitors are able to come, come at any time.
0: Is your sense that the art industry in asia is pretty much going to keep going on because i mean i know that there was an art taipei fair in october there's fine art asia in in hong kong due at the end of november do, do, do you sense that yes you know there, there is there is there is this alarm because you had a single case in shanghai but do you feel optimistic that the the you know the industry will keep ticking over
1: Well, if you look through pretty much all of East Asia, we've been able to wrangle things pretty well through a mixture of lockdowns and partial lockdowns and mask wearing and just general um, social compliance with public health health measures. So I think that we're pretty optimistic for... Um, at least some semblance of things going forward. It may not be as much as we would like, especially in terms of the travel, but at least domestically within regions, we can kind of function in most places. So, I mean, if you look at places like Taiwan, they've handled things very well. You know, South Korea has had, you know, two outbreaks, but they still reacted very fast when they happen again. Um, you know, it's It's been a very, you know... It was on, an ongoing process, but I think reactions here have been very strong. And the the irony is that having a good lockdown means that your economy can recover faster. And I think that's definitely happening in the art world.
0: That's certainly the feeling here that, that lockdowns have been too late and too badly managed to um, to sustain the economy in the way that it should have been done. On the front page of the art newspaper this month in November, there is a story about the desecration of... Monuments to the Uyghur people, um, Muslim monuments across China. And one of the things that is consistently talked about in in the West is how are Western galleries with presence in Asia registering this and are they questioning uh, the authorities and are they registering their um, unhappiness about the situation? Is there any pressure coming from the Western galleries? Can you tell me something about how much of an issue is what's happening to the Uyghur people in the Chinese art scene. Is it is is it even an issue?
1: I would say that most people in the Chinese art scene don't even know about it. Because media here is so censored and the internet is restricted. And so, you know, overall it's not something that's talked about in society generally speaking. For people who are aware of it, who are, you know, more more attuned to the news and more concerned about issues like civil rights and human rights there's not much anyone can do about it because we still have an authoritarian government. And if you speak out about these things um, in a public way, then you're the one who's going to be in jail. So even though people aren't comfortable about it, especially here in Shanghai and in Eastern China, where you know people are very business-driven, they're not ideological-driven. So this sort of cultural revolution type actions that are happening in Xinjiang you know it's it's not as bloody as the original cultural revolution is as far as we know but it's you know high tech and has the same sentiment about wiping out culture and starting with a fresh slate i think people who know that it's happening are not comfortable with it but most people don't know and if they do they can't do anything about it
0: and you would say that there's, there has been no noticeable change in terms of the Western presence in, in China at the moment at least?
1: I mean talking to Western galleries and museums and cultural institutions here You know, they're much more concerned about what we can do locally to push back against censorship and tightening roles because you really have to fight the battle that you're presented with. Xinjiang is on the other side of an enormous country and you know, it's essentially a, treated like a colony in China so it's a place that most people have never been to and it's completely foreign to them and unfamiliar so it's not a battle that anyone can fight but people are still trying to push back on the battles they can't fight
0: that's really interesting lisa thank you so much for talking to us
3: ah you're very welcome
0: the two shanghai art fairs continue until the 15th of november We'll talk to Shyla Kamari Singh-Berman at Tate Britain in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. Perhaps expectedly, an outpouring of positive reactions from the art world greeted last weekend's announcement that Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris had won the US election. You can read various artists' responses, with caveats that there are still pressing issues that need to be resolved across the country in Helen Stoilers, Nancy Kenny, and Vincent Noss's report. Conservation experts in Spain are once again calling for stricter regulations within the sector after yet another work has been irreparably damaged by an amateur restorer. A 1923 carving of a smiling woman on the facade of a high street bank in the northwestern city of Palencia has been crudely reduced to what is now being described as a potato head and drawing comparisons to the outgoing US President Donald Trump. As Kabir Jalar writes, it joins a pantheon of other bots jobs in Spain, the most infamous being the 2012 Monkey Christ, a restoration of an Nequi Homo fresco in the town of Borja. And finally, after a decade-long campaign, Mary Wollstonecraft, the 18th century English philosopher and women's rights advocate, has been honoured with a statue in London. But the silvered bronze work by the British artist Maggie Hambling which shows a naked every woman emerging from a swirling mass and cost £143,000 has drawn ire on social media, much of it focused on Hambling's use of the naked woman to honour a feminist icon. Among the wittiest responses was from Laura Wood who asked on Twitter how many of our important male writers are depicted naked in their statues, you never see Charles Dickens with his balls out do you? you can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app and you can hear louisa buck's interview with maggie hambling on this podcast in the episode from the 16th of october we'll be back after this the week in art is sponsored by christie's as art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online christie's continues to innovate with its auction calendar Bid until the 17th of November in The Collector, an eclectic online-only sale of furniture, objects and works of art from the 17th to the 19th century. Presented in collaboration with British Vogue style editor Gianluca Longo, it has everything you need to create a unique living or dining space. Christie's live auctions are also readily available for remote browsing and bidding. Explore stunning 19th century depictions of the Middle East in their sale of Orientalist art on the 18th of November, or avant-garde paintings and jeweled Fabergé creations in Russian art on the 23rd of November. The refreshed schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on Christie's.com. Welcome back. Before we go on, a reminder to check out our other podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth artist interviews. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now to hear more interviews in the coming weeks. Now, Tate Britain's annual Winter Commission is a rare work of art that can actually be seen in the flesh at one of London's museums now that the UK is in its second full lockdown. As ever, the Commission adorns the façade of Tate Britain and this year it's been taken on by Shaila Kumari Singh Berman, a key figure in the Black British arts movement of the 1980s. Louisa Buck went to meet her outside Tate Britain.
4: I'm standing outside Tate Britain at a good social distance from the artist Shaila Kumari Singh Berman looking at her extraordinary installation for the façade of Tate Britain, the Winter Commission. I mean... It's a Hindu temple. It's got an ice cream van. It has gods and goddesses going up the pillars. It has a great big eye above the door. It's an extravaganza of colour and light. Shyla, tell me about this. Tell me, what, what's the thinking
2: behind this? I mean, I wanted to obviously mash up the facade so that the people would literally say, wow, is that really Tate Britain? So that was it. I wanted to just, like, you know, completely, like, you didn't know what you were standing in front of, right? And um, I've always, always wanted to make neons, and but they're expensive when you make them in glass. But nowadays you can make them in silicon. When I found out that was possible, I thought, right, I'm ready to go. And then I thought it would be good to cover the pillars in things like, you know, a Hindu god, my own recycled collages I'd made on super high gloss paper. Um, and then um, the guys from Genesis Photo Lab know me well, and I gave them the images, and they were able to blow them up. So the pillars were the first things that went up and then I spoke to Tim at um Setworks. I, I showed him a picture of Barbadi. She's a goddess, one of my favorites. She's a really like um independent woman. She's always with usually with her husband, Shiva and I thought, No, no way man, I'm gonna make you um an independent while sort of uh I suppose it's a bit like a self portrait. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said to him, can you do this? in like neon and stuff. Can you turn it into something like... Uh, Bobby Didi goes, yeah. And I went, oh, my God. So I went onto the internet and I must have Googled every single Hindu deity that, that had been made in something like a neon. So I just kept doing all this research and then... Um Tibby says, well, if you could do drawings of them individually, then that would be brilliant. So I thought, well, that was really good because it got me back to pencil drawing, a pencil on paper. So now um, you've got these amazing drawings, drawing in light. I mean, you've, you've, yeah. you've
4: described your work. I mean, for, for you know, four decades, you've been working... Across all media, films, installation, sculpture, now neon drawings um, but you 've always you 've always talked about trying, wanted to relay and explore the experiences and aesthetics of Asian femininity, one of those political strands that go through your work yeah. there 's some strong women on the front of this facade. Can you talk a bit about this your feminism and you celebrating and also relaying about Asian femininity and what it means being a South Asian woman now, growing up in the seventies and eighties up yeah. to today. Well,
2: you know, there is still stereotypes to a certain extent. that were a little bit, a bit, meek and mild, and there was change big time. And people would know that. You know, like I wanted to become a black belt because I thought it'd be good to, it'd be good to like uh, um, teach Asian women how to fight because it was all about self defense. There's no offence. You remember in the eighties, it was all about that. So I thought right, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to put some of my favourite goddesses on the on the facade, so on top of Britannia, we've got got G- goddess of creation, and destruction, and the words on, next to her saying "I'm a mess," because uh, let's face it, we all are in a, pretty much of a mess, you know.
4: Certainly in UK S- at the moment, yeah.
2: Yeah. So uh, and that seemed to work, and then obviously me, she's a she's she's your goddess, the goddess of wealth and um, sort of like you know, really to sort your finances out to a certain extent, because we all need that um, bit of support, and she always appears during Diwali because Diwali is tomorrow on the 40th yes of course so, so this is actually celebrating Diwali I yeah. mean absolute coincidence so I thought and, and the tape were made up about that because when the at a Zoom first Zoom meeting they says oh, we're going to open on the 2nd of November and I says I'm sure that's the week of Diwali and it just happened to be that I have no idea the festival of light and you've covered the tape with light Yeah. And and, and I figured out actually because I'm a, quite a graphic drawer when I did one of my first degrees in like graphics and printmaking, I figured out I got these um, paint brushes. Uh, you no, know, they're they're felt tips but they've got brushes on the end. And when I was drawing these pencil drawers and then covering them with these felt brushes, I just thought I actually am good at this, and it flowed without showing off, and it really worked. And I thought, do you know what? And I wanted to. I wanted to bring up my style in the neon because neon can be quite stiff, mm. do you know what I mean? And quite tight. And I thought no, because it needs energy and it needs light and it needs colour, because Dual is a festival of light, you know. You know. And then I wanted to bring in my mum and dad's uh, family business. My dad and mum and dad were in the ice cream trade. Oh, the ice, ice cream. cream the ice cream.
4: I want. I just want to press pause on that for a minute because we have this magnificent neon ice cream van almost parked outside on the steps of Tay and you've got an ice cream cornet going up by the pillars so I mean you are really celebrating and then the whole theme of ice cream has run through you've, you've made many works about the ice cream van tell about that what, what was what was, what was was important about being involved in that family business early well, on in Liverpool? Well
2: I wasn't really you just had to get involved because you just had to every, it was everyone just had to I was cleaning the van every night eating loads of flakes uh, 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 Crushing the the, the, the ice cream boxes by the side of the van every single weekend. So, I mean, it's like, it's just like you, I could put chalk ices underneath my pillow when I went to bed, you know? I mean, you know, because you just sneak them all in all the time. So I thought, why not do a van? Because the ice cream I was always outside the Tate, why don't I do a neon ice cream van, replace that? Oh, it's got Berman's on it. It's got me, obviously, our name. Dad and, changed
4: his name, didn't he, to Berman? Yeah,
2: from Singh to Berman. But his name is Bachchan Singh Berman because he, he thought that he, we got upper middle mobile. He was didn't like the fact that he, we would call him working class. He says we're like we're like a Jewish community. we and Berman is a Jewish name, but it's also St. Berman is a Indian music director so it, it ticks all these boxes. So I thought, we'll, we'll have it, we'll have... And I sort of neon in the Godson graveyard of something to do with a ice cream corner. I said, I'm going to do something like that.
4: It's a fantastically fluid ice cream corner and, of course, the enormous tiger that tiger. your dad had on top yeah. of his ice cream van now as well. Now, that was
2: because we had a massive ice cream van that, that, uh, that my dad had uh, bought in the 60s and in those days, you had like huge ice cream vans, and they're not like little ones you see now. And you Batman and Robin. So, my dad, he just teared up with, he decided to put a, 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 a nice uh, a tiger on top. I mean, I, I, and he saw a tiger nuts in the van. I mean, it was just unbelievable. You know, that just shows he wasn't afraid of diversity. He wasn't ashamed of, you know, showing his cultural heritage to the whole. So, I thought. I do a tiger and it's a 3D tiger.
4: It's a 3D tiger in, ne- in ropes of neon. It's absolutely fantastic. And it looks like fantastic. it could eat
2: you up if you, go, if, you go, if you get
4: too close to it. I mean, ornamentation and adornment and maximal kind of aesthetics have, have been very much part of what you've done. You've made incredible work with bindis, with jewellery, with stick-on jewellery. I mean, running through your feminism of, is a sense of ornamentation. I'm interested about this, the role of ornament. Yeah,
2: because if you look at Punjabi culture, particularly, if you went to South you wanted an outfit, it's all. Oh, O T T T. It's very, it's very ornamental in a, in a, in a beautiful way. In a so I was just surrounded by that. You know, my dad was a tailor. You ask him to make me an outfit. You know, from a sari. You know, he stick all like bling on it. You know, you know, it is very ornamental. But and obviously, I that was around me. But I, I, I thought that you can use ornamental stuff, but with a message, like a political message, because you know, crafts people in India. They're really, really, really cool. I mean, all these women who make the bindis, they're not daft. You know, they've all got brains. And I just thought, you know what? And also, when you're at our college, you know, everything is is from a European perspective, you know, the dominant culture. And so... I was not allowed to when I was at Leeds Poly, when I was doing all my maker making extras. I wasn't allowed to stick a bindi on anything. So once I left the slate, I thought, that's it. I'm a birdlet out of a cage. I'm just going to what the bloody hell I wanted to do. And I just I contacted my, my relatives in India because you buy one packet of bindies here, it's like two pounds. And they sent me packets and packets and packets. So I was drawing with bindies. You know, I'm using them subversively. I, I mean, I do like wearing them, but I just like the idea of using them as a, as a means to draw. So your sense of going to art
4: school was really an escape route for you from an arranged marriage and yeah. also a way in which you could express yourself freely. What was it like being pretty much the
2: only Asian student at your art school in, in
4: Leeds at yeah. the time, in yeah. the 80s?
2: Fortunately, I'd just been to India when I was 19, so I'd been to India for three months the whole of Northern India, Kashmir, everywhere, you know, and uh, we used to go day trips everywhere. So um, when I got walked into Lee's Poly, first of all, I told everybody my name was Shyla instead of Sheila, and uh, and then and then um, and then I, I just don't know. I just kind of like it was the best. It is the wobbly in those days, 1976, <laughs> 1981, The best time to be uh, uh, to go to art school. You want punk and they'd like post-punk. You had blues dances you could go to in Chapel Town. It was just a really brilliant time. And there was, in the refectory, we could go and see a punk band and all the others were pogoing to it. Three times a week, there was something to do. And I used to sit on the floor and roll the joint because I was not a drinker because I was not allowed out when I was growing up, so I'd never been introduced to alcohol. So so I was just wondering, what are they all drinking these pints for, you know, and pogoing with a pint in the hand. I thought it was a bit nuts. So i will sit on the floor Cross-legged, and so I was listening to all kinds of music. Also, there was Bob Marley conscious music. That was all out, all coming out fiercely. And I had bought all every single women's reggae vinyl on vinyl. All the I threes.
4: Well, I want to talk a bit about that, about your feminism and about your political interests. Because although you were having this incredible time, of course, politics, music, agitprop work. Activism were all mixed up at that time, and I mean, by by the by mm. the eighties, you were getting very much involved also in the black art movement in the UK, weren't you? When, when you when you would leave when you left the slaves. Well, some...
2: that was much later, actually. That was probably about nineteen eighty five, around the GLC days. But before then. Uh, my big, well, basically because my big brother had this girlfriend who was white and she kept on talking about white feminism and I was just leaving the state and I was going hang on a minute, I've been reading all these books from American literature black feminist politics and I just turned on and says, you know what, there's such a thing as black feminism, my brother said, you're always a bloody troublemaker, aren't you, can't take you anywhere, you know, he's got his leg up because he'd bust it in the hospital, you know in contraction he's going to me, you're starting to fight again, you know, and I'm going no, because the fact is, this is the situation this is it you, you know there's more than white f- white feminism and and I just kept on reading and reading and reading and you set up a hostel for Asian women in at least at, at, in Town, yeah, uh, yeah that was like a, Asian women's refuge you know so I hadn't even known about South or Black Sisters that was
4: and then after that, you did become much more involved with, with the black art movement, feminism. You worked for the GLC, making murals. I mean, you were very embedded in that whole scene at yeah, that time, weren't you? that
2: was because it was all happening around us because, you know, Kelly Livingstone, who was a well, GLC fella, there was there was loads of events on in London. You could go to all kinds of, like, theatre events. There was lots of music. I mean, we were all talking politics. You know, everyone was like... Um, what's the word? When you're swinging both ways, you know. who was like, let's try this out, let's try that. And, and also, you know, I was hanging out with them. This is when I saw you know, lots of friends who were Asian governors who were coming out. And we'd all sit around to watch a Bollywood film. And all I could hear them say was, isn't she gorgeous? And I was going, yeah, she is. But, you know, and we're all sitting on the sofa, you know, having a, having a drink. It was absolutely just just fantastic time the energy around and I joined a a, 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 a collective called Mukti um, and they were producing um, a magazine a feminist magazine in six languages six Asian languages how cool is that and then there was the Race Today Collective Doc is How I was curating exhibitions at the Royal Festival Hall Creation for Liberation Artists Against Apartheid I was involved in a mandler cultural ensemble of the ANC you just kind of, I don't know what it was. It just felt like um, there wasn't a, I mean, we didn't, you didn't feel like it was, it was like work. It was like all these issues and, and, and isms and whatnot, and it all kind of was like political, but fun and celebratory. You know, but we, were, we all knew that some of that had to change.
4: So how do you feel about the current scene now? I mean, you wrote a great essay, there have always been great black women artists in response to Linda Nocklin's essay saying, why have there been no great women artists? There have always been great black women artists. Now there seem to be many more black and Asian racially diverse artists coming into the art world but it's still a very white male-dominated um, oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, enterprise, isn't it? No, it's totally. I mean, I guess I could have of to pick it up Freeze magazine or i get these things from Artsy going, oh, would you like to buy Damien Hirst? Or would you like to buy a Sarah Lucas? Or and I'm just going, do you know what? When am I going to stop hearing these names? I mean, I like their works, you know, I especially Sarah Lucas, but I'm just going, hang on a minute, where, where are our names down all this, you know? So, um... I think, I think there's, there's, there is a change happening. I can see the, the energy, because I do think, that particularly the directors of the Tate, you know, like um, Alex and Maria, they are, and Francis, you know, they, they are really going length to make changes, you know, because that's why I'm really, I wanted to do this when they asked me to do it, because they got me, and I kind of got them. And I just thought, you know what? Let's just do this together. You know, let's just make this happen. And the fact that it's locked down now and everybody say it's the best thing in the whole world. I must be the luckiest artist on this planet, you know, to be doing something outdoors when this thing's closed. I mean, what more could I ask for? I had no idea it's gonna pan out like this. And I do feel quite emotional because if I didn't even know this is gonna happen. It just makes me feel like and it's put me on another level because other you know people who've never come to my studio I've asked them loads of times will now want to check me out and it's a bit like okay lads time to give me a phone call get round to my studio
4: okay lads and lasses I think it is thank you very much Shyla, and congratulations on this incredible commission
2: well, thank you, Louisa. I wish we had more people like you to talk to because you really get me. I'm really pleased.
0: <laughs> Shaila Kamari Singh Berman's Winter Commission is at Tate Britain from the 14th of November until the 31st of January. And you can read an interview with her, also by Louisa Buck, in the next print issue of The Art Newspaper, which is out on the 1st of December and includes our review of a tumultuous year. Now it's time for work of the week. When Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were announced as the winners of the US election last weekend, they posted a video featuring diverse Americans in various scenarios and capturing them in a golden frame. The video was inspired by Lorraine O'Grady's performance staged in Harlem in 1983 called Art Is. Our senior editor in the US, Margaret Carrigan, talked to Amanda Hunt, a curator at the Studio Museum in Harlem, who curated a show about O'Grady's seminal work in 2015.
5: Many people were very excited um, that the election results had finally been called, at least in a direction. Um, And the campaign right after that released a very stunning, beautiful video uh, set to America the Beautiful by Ray Charles, showed all these different people holding up frames in whatever landscape they were in all across America. This was drawn from Lorraine O'Grady's pivotal work, Art Is, from 1983. And that's a work that you have a very special connection with, I understand. So I wondered, um, you know, the videographers later noted that they had been moved to tears by this work after they saw it in the long traveling exhibition, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, while that was on view at the Broad Museum in LA last year. Um, But in 2015, you had organized a show at the Studio Museum of Photographs that resulted from this work of conceptual art that O'Grady did. Um, And I wonder if you can explain for us a little bit of the original performance that resulted in these beautiful
3: documentary photos that were at the Studio Museum. The performance Lorraine made in 1983 was a very important gesture, statement, uh, collaboration and um, artwork really it was within the context of the african-american day parade which has been a long-standing annual tradition in harlem but essentially the path starts at the top of 110th street uh, right along central park and continues up into the 40s and i think 50s 150s in harlem and it's an opportunity for the community to celebrate itself to showcase itself to create individual floats. Um, you know, for businesses in the community, um, for local unions, um, for cheerleaders from high schools in the area. So this was, um, as a public art piece, just meeting people where they were, living in the community um, that it really celebrated and came from. And the impetus conceptually for the work for Lorraine famously was after an interaction with someone in which they said um, avant-garde art is not for essentially people of color uh, for black people and I remember Lorraine telling me firsthand uh, and this is where I'll drop the knowledge the fun stuff I wrote my master's thesis on Lorraine uh, while at California College of the Arts and interviewed her in 2010 about. A number of works particularly mademoiselle bourgeoisie noir which is another performance persona and performance artwork um, that she's quite well known for um that was staged at the new museum but got some firsthand kind of information about this as well uh so it was this interaction with someone who was skeptical of quite frankly her ability i think as an artist to make work of that caliber and to demonstrate that non-white audiences were capable of interpreting, experiencing, loving, learning from conceptual and all kinds of art. So Lorraine literally took it to the largest platform she could imagine, which at that time was a giant parade in a section of New York City. She secured You know, permission to make a float. Uh, She was behind, like, the Cult 45 float. You can see it in the background in some of the images um, from the series of works. I believe there are 30 photographs uh, in this series that are documentation of the performance, but kind of live on as the artwork um, because we can't experience it in the way that it was that day in September 1983. Um, And she worked with colleagues, other dancers, um, some non-performance art people, and really got together a troupe to perform this work, which was for people to see themselves, period, and quite literally through this frame, this kind of gilded frame, which I even see behind you on our Zoom conversation, you know, a very uh, familiar reference for framing artwork, and the community became the artwork. The people, the individuals, became the artwork. And she didn't know if people would get it, you know, if it would kind of take. That's the risk in a lot of performance, I think, that engages an audience. And to her utter delight and joy, it took immediately. People knew. They said, that's right, baby. I'm the art. Um, And it was an opportunity like the Biden campaign framing America. She was framing Harlem. She was framing... The community there uh, in a really meaningful uh, way that resonates today in 2020 and beyond. I think that this is something that I had read about as
5: well, and I, that she was told that something like conceptual art or even art in general. And art appreciation of art wasn't for people of color. I think it could shock a lot of people potentially, but of course, you know, systemic racism is no longer a shock. It is they taught the top talking point in this campaign, um, in all of politics right now. You know, and in especially in the art world currently as well. But on that level, I want to better understand beyond just the scope of the racial slight that she was levied at her when about conceptual art. How has Lorraine herself just over the course of her career and within a work like art is helped expand and reshape the entire canon of conceptual art?
3: Oh, man. Lorraine's a mentor. She has led a few lives. Uh, she was a writer for Rolling Stone for a time. She's lived. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's been some government work uh, in in her life there's a full spectrum of experience and I think uh, the way that lorraine's shared that is through her writing. her writing's so important and um, you'll see that in uh, different kinds of works, works on paper always in in the space of her exhibitions it's It's always present and maybe less considered in in talking about her work, but in thinking about her work as a teacher, certainly, um, you know, her work at SVA, um, but I'm just thinking in the artistic community period. Uh, this was a statement, a series of statements that she made. Again, the other performance work I mentioned that I wrote my thesis on, Mademoiselle Bourgeoisie Noir, was in 1981. So there was a period in the early 80s where Lorraine was really out there, like, taking the risk and literally demanding that people look at her work within the context of a predominantly white art world take it seriously uh, and everybody kind of do better by themselves uh, and really open themselves up to the possibility that you know maybe there's not one dominant narrative uh, certainly which she knew but just to kind of break open that space and that possibility so I think the work lives conceptually, but this is also lived experience. Like this is what Lorraine lived by and demanded from others and wanted from others. Um, I have to mention just above Midtown, a gallery started by Linda Good Bryant, another woman of color uh, in the seventies. And this was uh, the context for a lot of the work and a lot of the community of color of artists working in New York city at the time. So. There were places um, where this could be expressed, um, but she really wanted to have it writ large. So I think that's the contribution. You know, the the work is conceptual. That's part of her identity as a maker. Um, But again, it's just in the living and in the practice of it. Speaking of lived experience, when did you
5: personally first see or or learn of Art Is and, and what kind of effect did it have on you?
3: I'm sure the first time I saw it was probably in some art history something um, or a monograph on the rain, something that spoke to her, her work, but um you know reading about the Biden campaign folks uh, being moved to tears, seeing its soul of nation. I remember seeing it there too, but it was more like an old friend at that point. There's just something so familiar in each of those images um, as characters or just knowing a little bit of background, having lived in Harlem myself uh, during the time that that work was curated by me at the Studio Museum in Harlem, just like, you know, that they had torn down this historic ballroom that's in the background of one of those images. So it's, you know, recognizing the building and the people who are still kind of sitting on the stoop on the block on any given day. Um, There's a register of it's, it's familial in a way. Um, I recognize these people in these communities. So it's always a, a, an absolute pleasure to see it in different contexts throughout the years. You know, it holds its meaning, um, but it also shifts a little bit each time.
5: It's, it's kind of unusual, I think, for a political campaign to so directly reference a work of art. And the Biden campaign even worked with Lorraine and got her blessing to interpret this work um, and we're in touch with her for about the execution of the video which is great gave her full credit like love to see that um so what do you think about this work speaking of just kind of its interpretations changing over time and what like what you recognize out of it each time what do you think resonated with a political cause at this
3: moment the most you know i'm also remembering just the idea of narrative of lorraine's own personal narrative as someone with Jamaican heritage, I'm just, it's all kind of rolling through right now, thinking about Kamala Harris and what she means symbolically um, to the country and to a lot of demographics at this point in 2020. Um, I too commend the campaign for reaching out to the artist about their artwork. That does not always happen in these circumstances. So that to me even signals something else um, that we're understanding and appreciating how artists contribute to culture at large and how rich um, that can be. And I think what resonated for them in this moment is just the beauty of each individual person who's framed, the little girl, the father in another frame with his camera just kind of on a Saturday enjoying himself. Um, That's as American as it gets. It's not about being in a black community necessarily or a white community. The frame really gives pause and appreciation to a landscape, a moment, a person, and elevates them. Everybody wants to be seen, I think. Everybody wants to see themselves reflected, uh, whether it's in their politicians or their art or their television shows or the books they're reading. And, you know, if the whole platform has been about unity, not division, like, let's remember our humanity. Let's just remember to kind of honor each other and that we all kind of contribute something uh, to this great experiment of America.
5: That is such a perfect way to tie up this whole conversation. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your personal experiences with Lorraine and your thoughts on this work, Amanda. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much, Maggie.
0: And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. Please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mahauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Lisa, to Louisa and Shyla, to Margaret and Amanda, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.